Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of KYH2O. I'm in the studio with Carmen, and Carmen, I got to um, meet up with Suzette Walling um, a few days ago, and we talked about rain gardens. So we met at the catchment, and I know from my experience that you have a lot of experience with the catchment. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how this rain garden that's located on the University of Kentucky's College of Agriculture, Food, and Environment's campus, how that came about? The catchment, as Suzette refers to it, and some of us on the south side of campus here call it the Farm Road Rain Garden because it's literally right by Farm Road, uh, was a project that really started out with Suzette when she was at the Tracy Farmer Institute for Sustainability and Environment here at UK. And they wanted to showcase uh, green infrastructure, what we think about as like low impact development projects on campus. Uh, at the time, I was actually teaching a course in low impact development and one of the projects I required the students to do, sort of their capstone and semester project, was to come up with a stormwater plan for this side of campus. Uh, people talk, next thing you know, uh, Suzette and Rebecca McCauley, who's now the department chair at Plant Soil Science, uh, came up to me and started um, presenting this idea because they really wanted a place on campus to showcase um, rain gardens and I think the other sites that they were given weren't quite what they were envisioning. Uh, at the time uh, Dean Smith, Scott Smith was our dean and he was I think pretty open to the idea of trying this out and we also had great partnership with UK Grounds because that was a big thing we had to think about was once this gets built who takes care of it? Let's hear what Suzette has to say about the partnerships that had to come together to make this project successful. Took a team of biosystems and ag engineering, um, working with landscape architecture, working with horticulture, so that brought in plant design, it brought in the design elements of the basin, uh, the hydraulics that, uh, that needed to be addressed as far as, or the hydrology that needed to be addressed as part of the uh, basin uh, requirements to make it flow through. So, um, and then, you know, uh, the soil scientists. So it, it was a, a huge uh, collaborative effort um, and since then, we've had other people come in and use the, the garden for, uh, or for experiments. So it's kind of an ongoing learning process. So Carmen, this area, I remember it before the rain garden went in, and it really was not attractive. Um, and, but the area was, was kind of used for um, retention then at the time, or was it not? It just kind of looked um, to the uneducated eye, just like an open ditch that sometimes sometimes had standing water in it. It was supposed to be a retention basin. So when they built the new plant science building, um, they had to have a place for the stormwater to go. And at the time, uh, that was really the only viable location for them. And you're correct. It looked kind of like a ditch because when the elevation where the water came in and the elevation where the water went out were pretty much the same. So the only real thing it was doing was holding a little bit of water in that channel, and I use that in quotes, that formed in there. Um, so quite honestly, it became a grassed area that had some wetness into it, and the geese loved it. Oh, well, we do have a, a healthy population of geese on campus from time to time, and um, while wildlifers might appreciate them from that aspect, from a water quality aspect, that can be a little bit negative. Um, 
but so let's, when I was talking to Suzette um, on site, she was talking about a little bit about what the area looked like previously and now what it looks like in terms of retention. So let's hear what she has to say about the appearance of it now. Well, first of all, we're sitting out here and compared to a retention basin, which would have been just a mowed grass area. I mean, this is a delightful area just to hang out in because it's beautiful and it's full of birds and um, and flowers. Uh, but the the benefit from uh, water quality is that it, again, it allows it the water to um, it, it's like in situ treatment. Uh, water then that is is held in the basin, so contaminants and things can actually be absorbed by soils. Um, and 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 removed from the from the water column, uh, so it's a it's a, almost like a treatment system. Um, it also uh, holds the water, so it reduces flooding um, and extra volume going into the stormwater systems. Let's kind of take a step back for our listeners and let's talk about what a rain garden really is, because I think we see them advertised as, like you mentioned, a low impact development practice and um, you know maybe they're used in municipal uh, applications or in cities towns some homeowners might um, but what is a rain garden Carmen a rain garden in its simplest sense is a depressional area so think of it like a bowl okay so think of it like your cereal bowl that you eat out of it's a depressional area so water can collect in it um, Homeowners probably don't do what we call amending the soil. So in Fayette County, most of our soil uh, has a lot of clay in it. I'd say that's about statewide though, right? Yeah, it has a lot of clay. We're not like the beach. And because of all that clay, water doesn't infiltrate or drain very quickly. Adding to that, in urban areas, we compact our soil, right? So we take these clay particles and we shove them even closer together so water doesn't go through very easily. So what we do with the rain garden at this one and a, larger, a lot of larger municipal ones or bigger ones that you're referring to is we actually will go in and mend that soil, which means we typically add uh, some sort of wash sand to it. And we usually add sometimes some sort of compost to it. And usually that's some sort of leaf-based compost that adds organic matter because organic matter is gonna absorb water and hold it a little bit and help with the plant growth. But that sand is also gonna let uh, excess water infiltrate on down. And so cities can use these for um, stormwater quality as well as quantity. Um, and so let's listen to Suzette mention um, some of the benefits that we're seeing from this particular rain garden. We've got a lot of, you know, if you look at a map of a lot of cities, they utilize retention basins um, for stormwater quality. Um, and these are, tend to be just kind of ignored areas. Um, and I think more and more cities are realizing that they can um, capture that space back and turning it into a more natural environment. These are areas where people can go and hang out and rest um, and, you know, kind of recuperate from the busyness of the day. So it's definitely uh, has a, um, a, you know, a social benefit and a health benefit um, as well as the water quality benefit. So the other part of rain gardens and successful rain gardens are the plants, right? Um, and so um, Suzette and I um, walked around and, and it was really evident to see that there were a variety of plants that were there at the catchment. And um, she also described a little bit about um, how the rain garden is used and, and how those partners that we talked about earlier came together. And so she describes here a little bit about um, the horticultural side of things. Horticulturalists wanted to kind of see, you know, what 
what plants would work best in certain soils, um, what, how would they respond, um, you know, where, it's kind of a, um, a, a working garden. So if I come over as, a, as an individual and I want to say I'm interested in planting something, I can come over here and look to see what's growing where and in that environment. Um, we had people do water quality studies in plant and soil sciences. Also, um, some folks over in uh, uh, arts and sciences in the geology department, they uh, did some, had some students doing some uh, water sampling. So there's various projects that have gone on out here. Um, and again, and it's in our backyard. Nobody has to travel anywhere. Uh, it's easy to come over and sample. And, um, and it gets people engaged with what's going on on campus. So from a campus perspective, it's really nice to hear that students are getting engaged with the rain garden. And Carmen, I know some of your students, beyond those who worked on the design, have also been involved with the rain garden. Right, so Suzette talked about um, earth environmental science or formerly geology, taking water quality samples out there. Uh, plant soil science, one of the professors did a lot with uh, soil physics and measuring soil properties. We've had students go out and measure the hydrology. So one of the things is we want to know uh, when water comes in, uh, how much goes out, how fast does it go out. Uh, so those are questions that we've had students at, either in classes or as research projects actually study how well that rain garden behaves and is it doing what we want it to do. After Suzette and I met and chatted for a few minutes, we took a walk through the rain garden area and you know I've been on campus and watched it develop and have seen the transformation of that area and it really is inviting and really kind of a refuge in our somewhat of a sea of asphalt and concrete. So let's listen as Suzette walks us through, takes us on a tour of the rain garden. All right, well first of all, we're, what we're walking through right now is um, we call it the classroom. Um, this was set up as like a little amphitheater so that somebody could actually come out here and conduct a class if they wanted to. And tailgaters use it uh, in football season. Uh, I've seen kids come out here and climb on the rocks and whatnot, but it's really set up as an observation area as well. So, um, and so a lot of the plants here are, um, they prefer drier areas because we are up on a little bit of a berm. Um, and a lot of, again, native plants that are um, native flowers that are up in here. So this is a ball cypress. There are four of these here. Two of them are down in the water, um, which is where they love it. And they are, you know, like about twice as tall as this one. This one's right on the edge of the berm. He's hanging in there. Um, it's a little bit more challenging for him here, but the hope is once he gets big and tall, he'll give us our, a little more shade over our rocks. Um, we do have a few things that kind of volunteered. We had some uh, red buds and some other things that have come in that have uh, volunteered along the edges, and I guess some of those will leave in place. Um, we have button bush uh, that's down here near the water's edge. Uh, they're they've gotten really big. Uh, they're like, what do you think that is? Ten feet tall. Well, as an engineer working on this project, one of the things that was always most challenging for me. Um, because I don't have a strong background in it, is what plants to pick where. And I've noticed uh, out at the rain garden, there's plants that look like they're deliberately planted in certain areas, either because of either the wetness or because of coloring or something like that. What have you noticed out there? So that's a good point about the moisture. And oftentimes when we start to design landscapes, and especially um, in buff riparian buffers or areas where we do have varying levels of water or moisture, soil moisture, you do have to look at what those plants prefer. So some plants 
prefer to have wet feet. So that means they will tolerate saturated conditions. You can have them submerged in water. You know, bald cypress doesn't mind having its feet wet and will actually send up knees. And we've seen in kind of swamp and slough areas. Um, but essentially that's how you determine what to plant where. But, you know, just like anything else, the best laid plans of mice and men, you know, oft go awry. And so plants tend to kind of do their own thing. And you might put a plant in one place, but over time it might migrate or it might send some seeds somewhere else. And, you know, that's one of the things I've enjoyed about the rain garden. It was obviously designed. Things were put in particular places on purpose. But it's also been a learning experience to watch how the habits of some of these plants. Um, you know, the, the button bush has grown up. It's become pretty large, um, probably maxed out at its height at, you know, 10, 12 feet tall. But it also, it provides a barrier to some, you know, to some degree. Um, it kind of creates an outline of the, the wetter area. Um, but then also there's another part of the, of the rain garden that has some grasses and sedges. And so, um, Suzette does a really good job of describing what she's seeing, you know, as we walk through. So let's listen to what she says. So we have a lot of grasses over here. Um, we have sedges and rushes, so that must be a rush. Um, but, and they're mostly along the stream channel. Um, they, they can handle the wet, they can handle being drenched, um, they like it in the sun. So um, that's, they're kind of filling in the stream channel over here, at least the edges. And across the way, uh, that's um, uh, red osier dogwood. Um, uh, it, it, I don't know if the bloom is so magnificent on them, but in the winter time, they have a red twig. And so when there's snow on the ground and you see these red twigs, it's just stunning. So I agree with Suzette about the, the dogwood species that is planted at the rain garden. It, I think the rain garden is equally beautiful in the winter when you know things are dormant as it is when things are all blooming and colorful um, you know the benefit of of those blooms in the spring and the summer is it provides pollinator habitat um, we saw and and you can hear in in the audio um, you hear the birds singing and you know there's lots of birds moving around there was some some sort of small mammal creature moving around in the you know the leaf litter uh, while we were out there so that's a really nice benefit as well. And then um, Suzette will describe another um, couple of plants for us as well. Let's listen to what she has to say about one of my favorites, which is Joe Pie Weed. And then there's Joe Pie Weed as we move uh, closer toward Basin 2. Um, it's got, it, it's a, got a big bloom on it, uh, tracks uh, butterflies. Um, and again, it kind of creates another a barrier on that side just so people just can't easily walk down into the water um, but it might make it frames that part of the the garden really pretty um, and then behind that there are some grasses um, so there's almost like a little trail between the joe pie weed and and the switchgrass that's behind it so one of the interesting things you mentioned just mentioned amanda was that some of these plants where we started out with in one location have migrated off maybe to a new one or volunteers have come in. Should we expect that all the time? 
Well, with any landscape, if we don't maintain it a little bit, it's just going to go, it's going to naturalize, right? Um, you know, some people, you know, might laughingly go, well, it's like nature gone wild. And well, that's what nature does. And plants tend to find the most opportunistic location for them to, you know, live out their, their goal in life, which is to create seed and reproduce another plant. And so, you know, plants do move around a little bit and some plants come in that we might not want. Um, and so let's listen to Suzette talk a little bit about how we need to maintain the rain garden. It's not no maintenance. Um, this this garden still needs some work as far as some weeding and whatnot. It, again, it's a larger garden that most people would not try to tackle on their own. Um, but we have teams of students that come out here and we try to get staff out here uh, several times a year um, to tackle part of the gardens, that was, uh, take out the weeds, um, thin some things out, um, you know, and transplant. You know, we've, the, the, the grasses can get really thick and we can thin them out and transplant and move them to areas that are a little bit, that are thinner, that need a little bit extra um, grass protection to protect the soils around the edge of the ponds. So Suzette mentioned um, rain gardens are low maintenance, but not no maintenance. And I do think that's an important thing for our listeners to remember. And then um, those who may be interested in putting a rain garden in at their home, um, remember that there is some level of maintenance and some plants may come in that you don't want. Um, cattails typically will find standing water and will come in. There's nothing wrong with cattails, but they tend to be invasive. And so they'll take over and decrease the diversity of plants that you have. And that's why we might be interested in removing the cattails from the catchment, even though that seems like a little bit ironic, doesn't it? <laughs> that we'd be removing a cat of some way from the wildcat country. Um, but let's listen to what um, Suzette um, tells us um, in terms of how we might install a rain garden at our residential property. Most homeowners, they have gutters coming off of their house and um, and if they're, they might be directed toward a their neighbor's lawn or uh, a sidewalk or some, some hard surface so that the water is not being captured. Um, can they look at that maybe as, a, as an opportunity to put in a small rain garden and in other words, a little treatment uh, that where they can capture that water and hold it instead of just sending it right off, off down the um, down the slope. Um, a lot of times homeowner uh, gardens are about, you know, like four feet by 10 feet, very manageable. Um, and there are several publications uh, available to, to walk you through the process. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of communities offer um, workshops so that you can go and attend a workshop and learn how to install a rain garden uh, and then go home and, uh, with that information and do what yourself. So part of my um, interview with, with Suzette that I found really um, positive and encouraging was the positive feedback that she has gotten from um, faculty and staff and students around campus and you know what she is hearing in terms of the enjoyment people get from the rain garden. Well I've had people that have told me that they um, that they, they there's a parking area over here and that they intentionally they moved their parking space just so that they could walk by the garden um, in the morning and the afternoons. So that just says a lot that we've created a space, you know, maybe a place to kind of chill out from, from the morning commute or uh, before you head home. Um, we've had people, uh, people have come over here and they, they didn't even know it was here and we've walked around, they're like, this is really, really cool. 
Um, so it's it's still kind of an unknown, even though it's been on the campus for um, what almost five years. Um, but I think people that have come over here and worked in it and walked through it and stopped to appreciate it have really enjoyed it. This project was kind of one of our gateway projects for grounds and for UK campus kind of to buy in. So once this project went through and they were able to see how it worked, mm -hmm. um, it brought a lot of comfort level to other individuals. And now, you know, there's looking of other garden gardens going in on campus. We've got the Gluck Pond we're doing. The stream restoration projects went through. It's like, it's, you know, more, you know, the butterfly gardens got to be done. So it was a lot of, honestly, this was kind of a people maybe were apprehensive in the beginning, but then once things kind of turned out and they see it's working, then they got, I think, a lot higher comfort level with it. So Amanda, the benefits of rain gardens, and we focus mostly, like I said, on water quality with this podcast, but it extends beyond water. It really does. And Suzette really is appreciative of that and the, the benefit that we as humans get from natural spaces and natural areas and you've walked past this rain garden how many hundreds of times every day i come to work that's right and you know you're walking across parking lot you know parking space after parking space to a sidewalk into a building and beyond and so you know suzette had a, a real um you know positive spin on what benefit this can add to our lives here on campus. You know, we have a hospital here on campus, and so even thinking about people that are involved in caregiving, you know, can there be a way that we could uh, create uh, a map or a way to get into these different gardens or these different areas just so to create a little bit of a moment of respite? And definitely, um, we hear about that with, with not just student stress, but, um, you know, stress of workers and employees and, and just, uh, everybody needs a chance to kind of take a breath and when you live in an urban area there are not very many places that are close by that you can have a real retreat and so we have to create those spaces. The rain garden that was put in uh, a UK here near Farm Road or the Cats Catchment was a big project. I mean it was it was a large undertaking to do but rain gardens don't have to be um, large and they don't have to have uh, a professional engineer involved with them. They can be much smaller and at the local community level. Absolutely. And we've already um, heard Suzette talk about how a homeowner could put one in at their own home and what resources we have available. But I wanted to share with our listeners a project that you and I started last summer and then um, I followed through with some students at a local elementary school throughout the year and, um, and they were able to design their own rain garden. So I worked with some students at Redwood Cooperative School recently, and these are students that were on their leadership team, so a, a small team of fifth graders, and they were interested in learning about stormwater, um, and really they had decided they wanted to build a rain garden. Um, and so we kind of had to back up a little bit and go through the design process. Um, and so let's hear um, the students. I actually got to interview them as well. And let's hear them talk about the steps that they took to prepare for the installation of a rain garden. We did a project where we decided to build a rain garden. We got to choose the model we wanted it to be and choose the plants we wanted to be in the rain garden. Anywhere water will come off of, then it'll go into the rain garden and it will clean out, the plants will clean out the water 
and when it leaves you have clean water. So Carmen, this was really a fun project. You know, we've talked about this large scale catchment on UK's campus and I think you did this whole process just on a grander scale. So we kind of narrowed it down and made it a little more manageable. Um, and these students really took this process from start to finish. And um, you know, one of the things that, that we did was, was make a map of their school and where pervious and impervious surfaces were. And so Benjamin and Lily are going to describe what that was like. We measured impervious and pervious spaces in the school to like figure out where water goes. We saw where any water came out and where it all collects. We measured a this um, a drive-through to see how much or an estimated how much runoff would come through. So they really kind of downplay what they did here, Carmen, but these students did math by hand, like long math. You know, they were doing lots of, of calculations and I pulled my, my calculator out and started to put stuff in and one of them stopped me and said, no, we want to do this by hand. <laughs> So that's an, that's impressive that students are that excited about about designing the rain garden. Amanda, one of the things I've noticed, at least with students that I've worked with, whether it be um, young students like the ones that you were talking about at Redwood or through college students, is taking what you put down in paper and seeing it become reality. And did your vision or what a, did it become what you expected it to be? What was it like at Redwood? You know, and with fifth graders, it's hard for them to have a lot of expectation. Their life experience is a little different than, you know, a college student or, you know, for you and I. Um, but they were most excited when the heavy equipment arrived. It was really cool seeing, like, the back of our field being dug up. And it was much deeper than I expected. So, Carmen, and it wasn't only the leadership team, the fifth grade students that were excited by the heavy equipment. Um, you know, I was there throughout the whole installation and um, as appropriate, the younger students were able to come over and get as close as possible to watch the, we had a small um, backhoe that was, you know, excavating and um, you know, the, the equipment operator would drive past where the students were and they would cheer for him. <laughs> and so I'm sure he loved that. He did, he did. So we were giving him a hard time and saying, I don't, you know, I, I, we set a pretty high expectation for all, uh, all excavation projects that he would have a, a whole cheerleading squad, you know, cheering him on. Um, but they did all enjoy the heavy equipment. I think that's just the fascination um, that probably all of us and some of our listeners have of just, you know, watching equipment do the work that it would take an individual, you know, hours upon hours to do. And they, you know, make quick work out of it too. One of the things I liked about this Redwood project was it's, it's obviously not something you're going to do in one day. It's a project that takes a little bit of thought plan and planning involved, but it's also a project where students get to touch all kinds of different um, knowledge areas. So they get to do obviously the math, they got to look at plants, they got to learn about soils, they got to learn about water movement, um, they got to learn about construction. So this is really a style we think about like is more of project-based learning. Do I have a problem? Can I design a project and carry it through 
all the way to the end. You and I both are trained as environmental educators, you know, in addition to our technical training. And that is, you know, one of the approaches that's highly encouraged is that you use the local environment as a teaching tool. And you, you look at your local environment, you identify challenges, these students had identified the fact that there was a lot of storm water that was coming off of their school and off of the school grounds, concentrating in a little um, stream that they nicknamed Redwood River, which is really just stormwater runoff. And you know, they said, "Hey, we want to be you know good stewards of our local watershed. What can we do?" And so they investigated it um, from all those aspects that you mentioned and did lots of math and learned about plants. They actually came over to UK's campus and saw the stream restoration project that you've worked on um, previously. And so they took all of those pieces of knowledge and put it together into one culminating event. And um, even though this was a much smaller project than what the catchment was, this was a big project, you know, especially for fifth graders. for five fifth graders, yeah. right? And they just did a beautiful job going through the whole process. And, um, you know, I'm just really proud of, of the work they did. And not only did they take the leadership and ownership of that project, they also shared that with the younger students at their school and involved the younger students and helped them help teach them. So that's another aspect we always look at, right, with um, environmental education is teaching others what you know that reinforces that you know it, now you're sharing it with someone else. Um, and so um, their teacher, uh, Ms. Cummins, uh, let's listen to what she has to say in terms of why their school and, and these, this project was important for not just those individuals, but for the whole community. I'm just so happy that we were able to do our little part to help the environment and to help everyone learn about how they can be better stewards of the environment. This was really all their work and their ideas, and so I hope it really encourages and inspires others to do similar things. Yeah, and they've already asked to build two or three more rain gardens. So now everybody, you know, wants to do the same thing. They're all very excited. So it'll be really good for us to watch this over the next few years to see yeah. um, the, the level of success we have. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of KYH2O as we learned about rain gardens. And also um, just the common theme from both of these projects Carmen, I thought, was the ability and the opportunity to share information and knowledge with others, and not just share that, but inspire others to do better and to take better care of our natural resources. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KY H2O.